Her Majesty the Queen, the Tower of London, hold your loved ones tight. She's tiny. That's the first thing. I'm at the Tower of London where I brought my mum to meet the Queen, which is a rare thing indeed. And here she is now coming towards us. Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor, whose official title is Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of her other realms and territories, Queen, Head of the Commonwealth, Defender of the Faith, which is a huge title for a woman who is tiny, at least physically. Let's call her Lizzie, if we dare. Or Granny, the national grandmother, who was five foot four in her prime, but who's now barely five feet, I'd say, looking at her. And here she comes in turquoise, in one of those bright coats that help subjects see the sovereign from far away. For most of us, most of the time, conversation with the Queen is impossible. She's the Queen. You can camp outside the castle all night if you like, but you're not going to get a deep chat. But the survival of the monarchy in a democratic age depends on the common people, that's me and you, feeling a connection with those who rule over them, which is her. And she knows this very well. She also knows her animals. She loves corgis and horses and emperor stags with their mighty antlers and understands their kingdom and knows from them that there's more than one way to connect. And one of those ways is to project so you can be seen in all your glory. The bright clothes, the regal bearing, the way she waves. You know the way she waves. You could do it now arm up at a right angle, hand rotating on the wrist. That's the queen. That's her trademark. Like the silhouette of her that's on the money. Literally on the money. You know you're famous when people not only recognise your silhouette, they buy their chips with it. This is the most famous woman in the world, even more famous, arguably, than her own country these days. Displaying herself at public events, in galleries, high up in grandstands, when she's being driven in her big black limo or her golden carriage, or walking among the people, or near them anyway. This tiny granny playing a huge role, dressed to seem much bigger than she is, like a peacock with its feathers wide, or a lizard with its frills unfurled, or that harmless moth whose wings are patterned in the shape of a pair of eyes and an open mouth so predators think it's a snake. Here she comes then in a turquoise pillar box hat and a turquoise coat with black trim clutching a patent black bag dressed like nobody else ever dresses in clothes that are intended to hide the lines and frailties of a 90-something year old body to bring order and structure and the appearance of strength while at the same time looking like something a granny might have worn in the 50s, which is genius. She's in the room, coming down the line of people who've been put in place to meet her, including me and my mum, Marion, who smiles tightly and I see she's nervous. 
The queen looks super sleek, her beady, surprisingly playful eyes shining, head nodding slightly at the few fumbled words each starstruck subject is allowed. And the nods remind me of a Muppet. You know, the way they nod. Safe and friendly, nodding to affirm what's being said, happily content, but not really there. Yes, ma'am, says the lady next to me, nearly knocking out the sovereign's eye with a hat feather as she curtsies. She rhymes it with the start of Marmite, by the way, although it should rhyme with jam, apparently. My mum told me that. But wait. What are we doing here? Well, to answer that, I have to tell you a ghost story. The heavy black iron bolt slid back and the door of my cell for the night opened with a mighty creak and a dark, strong voice said, Good luck then. This was the constable of the Tower of London, the Lord General Sir Richard Dannett, former head of the British Army, a veteran of many campaigns, someone who'd seen horrors and fought hard and lost friends and been in terrible situations that made his blood curdle and his nerves scream, but who now shook me firmly by the hand at the doorway of the cell and said, Rather you than me. Nobody has slept in here since Thomas More left to be executed in 1535. I stepped inside, and there it was. A bare room with sandstone walls and a pitted floor and arrow slits in the shape of the cross that let in the cold, but very little light, and a vaulted Norman ceiling that gave this place the feeling of a chapel. I knew this was considered a sacred place, and that believers fell silent when they entered the cell where the man they called St. Thomas More had spent his final days, as his former friend, the king, tried to break his will. The winter he was in here was the fiercest anyone then could remember, and Thomas was broken by it physically. As damp ghosted into his bones, arthritis bent him double in pain, and he prepared to meet his end in front of everybody. Lord Dannett told me Thomas More was an intelligent, articulate man, a scholar and a personal friend of Henry VIII, but he couldn't find a way to support Henry's divorce, or the king's decision to split from Rome and make himself the supreme head of a new church. This was a man who stood up for what he believed and who was willing to die for it. So Moore was a prisoner of conscience. But real life's never that simple, is it? He persecuted those who had different beliefs to his, possibly tortured them, Six were burned as heretics while he was Lord Chancellor. Lord Dannett conceded with military understatement, we are not talking about a man whose hands are completely clean. When they fell out, Henry tried to teach his friend a lesson. Thomas was locked up but looked after with wine and furniture and books and writing materials. But as he refused to back down, his privileges were taken away until he was alone in this bare cell, facing the sentence of death 
for high treason, which would mean being hung, drawn and courted, although Henry changed that to decapitation, which was quicker and less painful. A small act of mercy for a former friend. I won't let them put a noose around your neck, cut you down when you're only half strangled, pull out your guts while you're still alive, and cut you into quarters. No, I'll tell them to sharpen the axe and make it quick, because I love you. And I was about to spend the night where Thomas spent the night before that happened. In the lower cell in the bell tower, with the Thames lapping outside down below, and the sounds of people passing by, talking courting, crying for him, maybe, until the dawn came up on July the 6th, 1535, and the door of this cell was opened, and guards led Thomas More away to Tower Hill to have his head cut off. I had a soldier offering kindness. There's a bed waiting for you, said the general, who lived next door. When the dawn comes, as far as I'm concerned, you will have kept your watch. Then he left me to it, with a sleeping bag and an open mind, and senses overloading with the sounds of modern London sliding through those arrow loops. I felt chilly, to say the least. There seemed little hope of sleep, and I wanted to do something meaningful, to engage with the place, to respond to its history, and listen to its lessons. So I lit a candle, and... By the flickering flame, I read out loud the words that Thomas wrote here on the night before he was beheaded. Not on paper, but on a scrap of cloth, and not with a pencil or with ink and quill, those had been taken away from him, but with the black rub of the stub of a stick charred in the candle flame. He was writing to his daughter, Meg, a brilliant woman, among the smartest of her day, remembering the last time they'd seen each other, which was on the day of his sentence, as he walked to the tower. Meg elbowed her way through the crowd, pushed past the guards, and flung her arms around her dad, and kissed him and kissed him, choked with emotion, unable to say anything, until a soldier ordered her to stop, and forced her roughly away. Thomas tried to reassure her. She kissed him one more time, then he turned and walked away towards his prison without looking back. Now, as the moments slipped past and each hacking breath brought him closer to the dawn and to the end, he remembered those moments and tried again to say something that would help. Our Lord bless you, my good daughter, and your good husband, and your little boy, and all yours, and all my children, and all my godchildren, and all our friends. I never liked your manner towards me better than when you kissed me last. Farewell, my dear child, and pray for me. And I shall for you, and for all your friends, that we may merrily meet in heaven.
It was hard to blow out the candle. The darkness smothered my face. I lay inside the sleeping bag with the hood around my head and tried to order myself to sleep, because midnight was long gone and I would have to work in the morning. But I was wide awake against my will. Somehow a connection had been made through the words of love and the slight flame and the leap of imagination. Back to then. Back to him and her. But it wasn't just that. And it wasn't just the rush of adrenaline at being in this place. The first person in hundreds of years to spend the night here. I also had a very real feeling of being watched. I was so tired. But my body was saying, No! You can't sleep. Are you joking? There's danger in this place. This is dangerous. Wake up. Get up. Look out. I couldn't override this. It was out of my control. Like the feeling you must have when your house is on fire. So I sat up and unzipped the bag and flicked on an electric torch and flooded the corner where I felt my watcher must be. With sweet, revealing light. There was nobody there. But even in the light, I felt like there was. Now, there are lots of alarming stories about ghosts at the tower. The white lady, the screaming countess, the princes who died in captivity, even a ghostly bear, and a sinister, smothering force. But this didn't feel like a haunting. This presence wasn't frightening. It wasn't friendly, but it wasn't hostile. I just had the feeling of being observed by someone with authority and presence. Although not Sir Thomas More, I thought then, for some reason. There were plenty of other candidates. And of course, I could have been making it all up subconsciously summing up the feeling because I wanted something to happen. I'm not ruling that out. But it was so tangible in the moment that I said, Hello? Hello? Hi. You all right? I know it sounds strange. There was no reply. I could see nothing. But the feeling was real, and so was the compulsion to explain myself. I was in the tower in the middle of the night, and I felt like there was something or somebody there with me, and I was in their place. I felt the need to speak, as you might to a bull in a field. Look, I'm so sorry to disturb you. I really mean no harm. Was I scared? Yeah. Let's put it this way, I didn't sleep a wink. And as soon as the dawn came, I ran off to the general's bed. The chapel of St Peter ad Vincula, the church inside the Tower of London, is named after the character in the Bible who denied knowing his close friend Jesus three times during his trial, and who went fishing 
to ease his guilt and grief, to work out the sorrow with his hands. But he saw the ghost of his murdered mate on the shoreline, smiling, and leapt out of the boat and swam and splashed and ran towards the spectre, who turned out to be real and resurrected, at least according to the story. And that must have been a comfort to Peter much later when he was arrested for his love and put in chains, which is what gives the chapel at the tower its name. And I wonder if Sir Thomas More thought about that story as he sat in his cell close by to the chapel, because they say an angel appeared to Peter and told him to get up and leave, and the door of his jail swung open and Peter walked out, no longer in chains. And surely, surely, Sir Thomas More thought, if what I'm doing is right, if God is really with me, why can't I be rescued too? Instead of which, he was killed, and his head was put on a pike on London Bridge for all to see as an example. But after a month out there in the open, it was rescued by his daughter, Meg, who bribed the man who was meant to chuck the head in the river. She kept the head of her beloved father, pickled in spices, in a jar, until her own death, when the skull was buried beside her. His body lay headless under the chapel of St Peter in Chains, near Anne Boleyn, who had pleased and then displeased the king, like him, and Catherine Howard, who was taken as a teenager to be Henry's next wife, but killed less than two years later. And Lady Jane Grey, who was named Queen at the age of 16, but deposed after nine days, and executed too. All of them, in their own ways, victims of the crown. They wanted to raise money to restore the chapel and to honour Thomas More, so they asked me to write about it, but I said, no, that sounds too dull. Couldn't I do something more interesting instead, like spend a night at the tower? Because here was a chance to do something extraordinary, to really connect with the spirit of a place, by which I mean not just the look it has, the elegance of the architecture, the faded stone, the scars of battle, the scent of ancient wood, the sounds of voices echoing, the spookiness of a castle at night, but also anything that remains from all that has gone before, from the people who were there, and the stories they told, and the stories told about them, and the prayers they sent up in thanks or desperation, the human desire for an answer or a rescue, creating a powerful energy in the room, the sorrow of the doomed, the hope of the devout, the tears of the grieving, the joy of the reprieved, the ecstasy of lovers. Who knows if these things linger? Who knows if they bind together in some invisible way and leave a trace, an atmosphere? Sometimes they do seem to. Sometimes there is a way to sense all that. If you understand where you are 
and wait quietly, listening, open to anything. And many of us do seem to need to believe that connection like that is possible if you go to a place and hang about and try to imagine as if there's something contagious about it that will touch our own lives and maybe help us. If someone was good, perhaps we could be good too. That's one of the reasons people waited by the roadside to see Mandela's body pass. It's why people go as pilgrims to ancient places, chapels or stones or cathedrals or wells or mountaintop springs where blessings and healings happened long ago. Although there may be no evidence for that except a story, passed from mouth to ear to mouth down the years. And it almost doesn't matter what's true, as long as there is a story we can gather around to catch some warmth on cold nights, a trace of the divine maybe, a rub of luck, even just a spark of goodness. There's a shrine on a wall in Cardiff Bay where photographs and poems have been placed in memory of a young man called Ianto Jones. And people leave gifts and flowers and write testimonies to the way his life has touched them as someone who was openly, wonderfully, bravely bisexual, who loved without fear and died for love. And it's beautiful. It's really moving. When I was there, I saw a couple standing together, arms around each other, reading the cards with tears on their faces. And you can see that lives have been changed by Yanto Jones. But the thing is, he's not real. He was a character in a science fiction drama on the television, Torchwood, made up by a writer, embodied by an actor, a complete work of fiction. But the change, the love, the sense of community, the sense of belonging that's grown up around him and the way people have been helped, consoled, inspired, made braver, all of those are real. And so it is with the Queen, I think. Not Lizzie, the real person, but the part she plays, the way we gather around her image, the story we tell, which helps us define who we are. She's only Queen because we say so, and, let's be honest, by accident of birth. That could have been me, I could have been King, so could you, or Queen. Okay, maybe we were born too late, but... Take my grandmother Gladys, who was actually born around the same time as Elizabeth in the same city, and they both served their country during the war. Gladys as a fire warden, climbing to the top of tall buildings during the Blitz and after to see where the bombs were falling and the flames were rising. Lizzie, driving a truck for the army, learning how to fix the spark plugs up to her elbows in Greece. 
They both married brave men, Frank and Phil, who went off to fight, and they were both in the crowds of central London on VE Day, tight among strangers, high with the surge of relief, hidden among the crowds of people celebrating, singing, kissing, laughing. And they both were full of hope as the 50s came, young and in love and happy. But then Lizzie lost her dad and everything changed, as she'd known it would, partly because her uncle David had set aside the crown for the sake of a woman he loved, and partly by sheer cosmic chance. She didn't choose it, she didn't even want it, as far as we know, but she was made queen, too young, too young at 25. And heavy is the head that wears the crown. At least she had Phil, while Gladys had Frank. Both men home from war, one in search of a meaningful role, one a printer from the East End who loved his football. And Prince Philip may have been scratchy and moody, and he may even have strayed, but he also stayed by her side, two steps behind in public, looking out for her, making sure she was all right, challenging her in private, arguing, provoking, thrilling, frustrating, the man who knew those most secret parts of her that were hidden from us all. Let's not romanticise this. Their relationship seems to have been very difficult. But he was there. He was real. She must have needed that. Through all the madness. The way to keep the crown she'd been taught was to appear just ordinary enough for the common people to feel a connection, but different enough to be considered royal. And while her children and grandchildren did their best to look as much of a mess as the rest of us, with their catastrophic love lives, fallouts and failures, tragedies and scandals, Elizabeth somehow managed to remain serene. Keeping the royal show on the road for the past 70 years has been something like a miracle for her. And she's done us all a favour too. I'd rather not have a queen, to be honest. I'd rather live in a country of equals. But even the fiercest Republican has to admit she's been a great one. A constant, calming presence in a nation that has so often needed calm. Working hard with such a sense of calling. Carrying the values of a wartime generation who just kept going through the darkest hours, but who have nearly all gone now like Frank and Gladys and Philip, her lifelong companion. And still, as I say this, she keeps going on. As my mum points out, say what you like, but if anyone knows what it means to have a sense of duty, it is her. As I write this, a young lad from Leeds has just won gold at the Olympics, and he's standing on the podium with the medal around his neck, crying as the national anthem plays. Of course he's crying, he's just won the Olympics. But I'm listening to the tune and thinking about the words and the ideas expressed in that song, 6,000 miles away from where Elizabeth is, alone in her castle now that Philip's gone. 
And I think about the anthem and what it must be like to be the embodiment of a nation's identity, an idea and an ideal, the centre of a huge wheel that sometimes feels like it's broken and spinning out of control, and to also be someone's granny, someone's mum, someone's sister, someone's widow, her own woman with her own aches and pains, to wake up in a palace but still have worries in your head and an aching in your heart. I hope she knows she's loved, not just for what she is, but for who she is, really. So she's coming down the line towards us in the autumn of 2014, a year after my night in the cell. The tiny granny with the huge title in her turquoise hat and turquoise coat with her patent black bag, with the Duke of Edinburgh, who is still alive at this point, right by her side, with his eyebrows like eagle wings and that quizzical look in his eye. What brings you here? I mumble some answer about writing a piece that helped to raise money for the restoration of the chapel and realise my mouth is suddenly incredibly dry and think, why am I calling him sir? Why am I deferring to this man whose position I don't really believe in? And before I can answer, he's turning to my mum and saying, is this your son? And she says, yes, sir. And he says, couldn't he think of somewhere better to take you? And he's off down the line with his hands clasped behind his back, leaning forwards like an inquisitor. And we're both left wondering if he meant it, thinking it must have been a joke. And we agree it must have been. And we sort of laugh. And we realise the Queen has moved on. We've missed her. The Duke was our distraction while she spoke to the important people. But then comes the service in the chapel to give thanks for the restoration. In my mind, there aren't many of us in there, maybe 40. It feels intimate. I think of the headless bodies of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard and Lady Jane Grey beneath our feet and wonder again at the miracle of a woman surviving for 70 years as Queen a title that's so often been a killer. I can see her in my direct line of sight, close. Elizabeth, the 90-year-old, who, for all the pomp of the surroundings and the splendour of her display, still reminds me of Gladys, my nan, and who is as close to me now as Gladys was in the rest home the last time I saw her when we were all singing Bye Bye Blackbird. And I looked across, and she smiled. And we stand and sit and stand and sit to sing and to pray until the moment that is most surreal 
everybody stands to sing God Save the Queen. God save our gracious Queen. Long live our noble Queen. Elizabeth, of course, does not sing this. She sits with her hands clasped on her lap while we run through the lines she must have heard a million times. They're all about her, but they're not really. They're about the notion of the Queen, and I don't see the empress of a lost empire or a symbol of anything in that seat. I see an old lady who is probably dying to put her feet up and have a cup of tea, but who knows her place, who does her duty and has done that for so long. It must have become habitual and is nodding along to the rhythms of the anthem in that happy way a Muppet nods, entirely self-contained, until she glances up at her husband and makes eye contact. And maybe he winks, or whatever he does, I don't see. But she smiles, and she has to put her head down to avoid a big old laugh during the national anthem, because that wouldn't look right, would it? But the smile lingers. Honestly, the pair of them, entirely public, entirely on duty, still themselves. And outside, afterwards, I loosen my tie. And Mum kicks off her shoes for a while on that warm day and we walk along the walls to look at the poppies, a wave of them spilling out of the tower and over the stones and across the grass to the moat. Blood-swept lands and seas of red, this piece of art is called. And it's powerful. There are 888,246 ceramic poppies, each one representing a life. A man or a woman, a boy or a girl who died for king and country in the First World War. The Great War. The war to end all wars. Which didn't. And I think of the parents of all these people who are poppies. The sisters and brothers, friends and lovers. And how it is that love endures. And I think of Meg with her arms around Sir Thomas More, barely able to let him go. And the couple standing together by the shrine to Yanto, and the smile that lingered on Elizabeth's face. And I realise that to survive in the midst of all this symbolism, all these big ideas and ideals that bind and inspire, but also crush and kill, you've got to find something tangible, someone or something real that you can trust and hold on to through it all. And I say, hey, mother, come here. And out there in the open, by the flowers of the fallen, I hug my mum, and she holds me tight.
Thank you for listening to that story about the most important woman in Britain, by which, of course, I mean my mum. Hello, mum. You heard a haunting version of the national anthem arranged and played by David Perry, who's also responsible, along with Mark Edwards, for this theme, which is a version of a song that I wrote with my son Jacob. Thank you, boys. Can We Talk is brought to you by Hod of Faith, and you can find out more and get in touch with me via the website at hodoffaith.com. Thanks. Thank you.